Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah 48, turn there. We actually got to the beginning of Isaiah 48 last week. It is my intention to complete that chapter this evening and get into the first part of chapter 49. Between chapter 48 and 49, there is a large transition in the book of Isaiah. The previous nine chapters that we've been reading for the last essentially nine weeks have all concentrated on God redeeming Israel out of Babylon, even naming Cyrus by name. So the emphasis has been on the Babylonian captivity and then on deliverance from that captivity, predicting that deliverance and that redemption of God's people back to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and restore the worship of God. That's been the essential theme of the last nine chapters. The upcoming nine chapters are also about redemption, but about God's suffering servant. We're about to get into the part of the book of Isaiah that most people are familiar with. Anybody who has a working knowledge or even a partial knowledge of the Bible or any time that you hear a preacher preach a message called the gospel in Isaiah, you know that they're heading right for Isaiah 53. And starting at chapter 49, you're leading up to chapter 53. Now, this is important to remember contextually that so far all of Isaiah has been about Israel and God's dealings with Israel. And that focus doesn't change when we get to chapter 49. It continues to be Israel and God's next promised deliverance for Israel. Whether we're talking about God delivering Israel out of Egypt God speaks of that as his redemption of his people out of Egypt, bringing them to the promised land. And then the northern tribes are scattered after going into the Assyrian captivity. And yet we've seen time and time again in the book of Isaiah, just like all the prophets, we've seen God's promise to restore the northern ten tribes and bring them back to their land and redeem them from the many places that he has scattered them to the four winds, and he's going to gather them from the four winds, bring them back to their land, and he refers to that as the redemption of Israel. Judah, the last few weeks we've been reading about Judah being taken into the Babylonian captivity, and then God punishing Babylon for the way that they treated God's people, Israel, and how God is going to deliver and redeem his people, Israel, yet again, and bring them back to the land. The theme of redemption continues from chapter 49 into chapter 53, through these next nine chapters, in fact, except that it's more than just the physical redemption of his people from the place where he has put them into captivity. It is the spiritual redemption of people through Christ. And so you begin to see the early versions of the gospel, the first telling of the sacrifice of Christ the first telling of substitutionary sacrifice, that theology is being developed in the book of Isaiah in these upcoming chapters. But again, I'm going to put a fine point on this, the focus has not changed. The focus is still the redemption of Israel. If there is any passage in the Old Testament that has been rather thoroughly Gentilized by the church, it is Isaiah 53. The church has really glommed onto that and said, that's about us. By his stripes, we are healed. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And they say that to the exclusion of Israel, and Israel is the focus of the promised redemption through God's suffering servant that is about to be described in the next nine chapters. And in fact, if we get to chapter 49 tonight, you're going to see the introduction of the promise, since God has been dealing with Israel all the way along, you finally see the introduction of the promise that Gentile nations are also going to be saved by the suffering servant. But even as you read about God making this kind of promise, this is the same God who proved that he can judge the Gentile nations. He's also the God who can save the Gentile nations because all nations are his. He can do whatever he wants with them. But his particular elect, redeemed group of people, Israel, are not eliminated so that he can add Gentile salvation. Instead, the focus is still on Israel's salvation, Israel's redemption, Israel's spiritual salvation and spiritual redemption, and also the Gentiles. And that is the mindset that Paul has in the New Testament which is why Paul says things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament do you see the elimination of Israel because of the inclusion of Gentiles. Instead, what you see is God's faithfulness to Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles. And we're going to see that several times tonight. And the language just couldn't be more exact, more precise. You're going to see it both in Isaiah tonight, and we may even look at a couple of New Testament passages that say the exact same thing, that God has not abandoned Israel. His promises are still for Israel. The promise of a glorious kingdom to come still belongs to Israel. The time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again still belongs to Israel. The promise of ultimate spiritual redemption still belongs to Israel. And because God is astoundingly gracious, he also includes you and me. But to think that the inclusion of Gentiles means that God has eliminated the promises that he has made to Israel is not biblical. It's not correct biblical exegetical thinking. Because nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Old or New Testament do you find anybody saying, now God has turned his attention to the Gentiles because he's finished with Israel. Nobody says that. Even Paul took the time to say, God turned to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous because he's going to bring Israel back. That jealousy is going to drive them back to look on the one whom they have pierced. God is not eliminating God is not turning his back on the promises that he has made to Israel he is simply expanding his grace to include Gentiles you get it makes sense okay I'm going to read all of chapter 48 even though we read the first half of it last week but just for context just so we know exactly who he's speaking to hear this O house of Jacob who are named Israel Pretty obvious who he's talking to. Yes. By the way, as I pointed out last week, the church is never referred to as Jacob. Israel is referred to as Jacob to remind them who they really are, a heel catcher, to remind them that they are a supplanter. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah. So now we're talking about Israelites who are also Judahites. So we're talking about the Jews, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is. It's real specific. You who swear by the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declared, God speaking first person, I declared the former things long ago. And they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. And suddenly I acted and they came to pass. 
That's God's continual defense of himself over these last nine chapters, the fact that he can tell you not only what the history of the world is, but what the meaning of the history of the world is, and he can proclaim things that haven't yet happened because he's determined everything from the beginning, and then it comes to pass because he acts. He works by his own almighty power to bring about the very things that he declares. And that's what he has said here in verse 3. I declare the former things long ago, the things that have already happened. I declared those before they happened. They went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed those things. And then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Because I know that you... You Israelites, you house of Israel, who used to be called Jacob, you Judahites, I know that you are obstinate. I know that your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is bronze. In other words, you're stiff-necked and you are hard-headed people. And I know that about you. That's why I acted. That's why I declared what I was going to do. Because if I left it up to you, I know how obstinate you are. You're not going to perform it. You're not going to do it. Therefore, says verse 5, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done it. Or my graven image or my molten image have commanded these things. Obviously, the graven or molten images that could not speak, that could not think, that could not get up and move on their own, the idols that God has been mocking all through this book, they never said anything in advance. They never said, I'll tell you what the future is. I'll tell you what's going to happen. God is the only, Yahweh is the only entity in the universe who can tell you what's going to happen and then exercise his might to make it happen. And yet, the obstinate, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, if they saw it come to pass, would think, oh, that's the action of my idol. I mean, how foolish is that? So God said, in order to prove it was me, the only God who actually is, I told you what I was going to do before I did it, and I had my prophets write it down before I did it, so that after it happened, you could go back and read that I'm the one who said it, so that you don't think that your idols did it. You don't think that your graven images commanded it. You've heard it. Verse 6, you've heard it. Look at all this. And you, will you not declare it? God saying to Israel, you should be my representatives. I've done all these things for you that I said I was going to do. You should be the first ones out there declaring my might and my power and my faithfulness. You've heard it. You've looked at all this. And will you not declare it? So then God makes a transition. He says, okay, that's my history with you. That's what I've done. I've told you what's going to happen in advance. Then I would act suddenly, intervene into human history, make things happen so that you would recognize that I'm the only God who can do that. Okay, now that I've done all that, I'm going to begin doing a new thing. And before I do the new thing, I'm going to tell you about it. So now he's going to start telling them what new thing he's going to do. And that new thing is the next nine chapters. That new thing is, I'm going to send my son to the planet. That new thing is the inception of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, not in the blood of bulls or lambs or birds. The new thing that he's going to do is spiritual redemption instead of just physical redemption. I proclaim to you new things from this time. So God has laid down a mark in time and said, okay, all the stuff I've done, you witnessed it based on the fact that you saw it. You should be able to proclaim it. You should be able to announce that I'm the only God that is. But because you're stiff-necked, because you're hard-hearted, because of your hard foreheads, because you just won't get it, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to change you from the inside. 
I'm going to redeem you spiritually. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to implant my Holy Spirit inside you. I'm going to do an entirely new thing. But before I do it, I'm going to tell you about it. That is why preachers can preach messages like the gospel in Isaiah. Because Isaiah the prophet is prophesying a whole new thing. The coming of Christ the sacrifice of Christ, the redemption of Christ, the healing that comes through Christ, that is this brand new thing that Isaiah is proclaiming here, that God is proclaiming through Isaiah. I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. Nobody knew this. Nobody could possibly know this. How could anybody in their right mind have decided, you know what God's probably going to do? He's probably going to send one part of the Trinity to the planet to take on human flesh. And then he's going to kill him and punish him and pour out his wrath on him instead of on me. Nobody's going to figure that one out. And God even says, these are hidden things which you have not known. They're created now and not long ago. In other words, I didn't tell you about it before because I didn't do it before. But now I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to do this new thing. And they're created now and not created long ago. And before today, you have not heard them. You have not heard about this, lest you should say, I knew that. I, I knew all that. I, I got that. God says, I'm doing a whole new thing you couldn't possibly know. And you can't say, behold, I knew them. Verse 8 you have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been open because I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you have been called a rebel from birth. You've been called a heel catcher from birth. You've been called supplanter from birth. That's the name you've had since the day you were born. And I know that about you. I know you're a rebel from your birth. So why is he doing all this? Verse 9, for my name's sake, I will delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. I'm going to wait and leave that up to theologians in the church a couple thousand years from now. Okay, it doesn't say that. <laughs> for the sake of my own name. I delay my wrath. For my own praise, I restrain it for you. In order that you will not be cut off, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my name's sake. For my name's sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? The name of God could be profaned. The name of God could be spoken ill of, spoken against. If he could make this many promises to his chosen elect people and then turn away from them, cut them off, destroy them in his wrath, then his name would be profaned. You would have to say, well, that's not a very faithful God. That's a God who can promise things to people and then not actually do it. So God asked the question, how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And now we're to verse 12. That's where we left off last week. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. Same group of people. The focus is still the same. Listen to me, O Jacob. Even Israel, whom I called, I am he. This is the same God who told Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, who should I say sent me? God said, I am. You go tell Pharaoh, I am, said, let my people go. I'm the only God who is. I'm the only God that exists. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. There's no one but me. I was before everything. I'll still be here after everything. I am. 
my right hand spread out the heavens, and when I call to the heavens, they stand together. He's the one that is in charge of the fact that the universe exists, and it consists and holds together because he himself called it to stick together. He's in charge of all of it. Assemble, all of you. Listen, Israel. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among you has declared these things? Who among you can do what I'm doing? Who among you can make the universe by speaking it into existence? I'm the only God who can do that. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. In other words, I love Israel. I've declared all these things for Israel. I've declared this glorious future for Israel. You didn't declare it. I, the God who made heaven and earth, I declared it. Why? Because the Lord loves him. Who? Israel. The hard-hearted, hard-headed, stiff-necked, rebellious, treacherous people of Israel. I love them. Why? Because I chose them. And I'm going to carry out my good pleasure on Babylon. He's going to destroy Babylon. He's going to bring in the Medo-Persians. Babylon doesn't exist to this day. I'm going to destroy Babylon in favor of my people Israel because I chose them. I didn't choose Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. And indeed, I have called him. If that's the same him as the previous verse, it's Israel. I'm the one who called Israel. By the way, back in verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. So it's very clear that he's referring to Israel whom he has called. He has spoken it. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him. And he will make his ways successful. So come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Really interesting momentary transition taking place, preparing us for chapter 49. Remember that Isaiah did not put a big 49 there. He was not writing chapters. He was having a series of visions, and then he was writing the particulars of those visions down. At this point, we are introduced to the Lord God sending me, who is clearly a reference we're going to see in a moment. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. This is all references to the Messiah to come. But even more interesting... The Lord God has sent me, so God the Father sent me, Christ, and his spirit. There's the Trinity in Isaiah. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So that entire verse says, come near to me. Listen to this. This is God saying, I'm going to tell you something new. I'm going to do something brand new. I'm going to do something you don't know anything about. I'm going to tell you something that you couldn't possibly know up until now. I, even I, am going to speak it. I've called Israel, and now I'm going to make his way successful. How is he going to make Israel's way successful? By sending his son. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So if that is Christ speaking first person, that the Lord God, Yahweh the Father, has sent me and his spirit, then he is the one saying, come and listen to this, come near to me. From the first, I have not spoken in secret, because Jesus, the Logos, is the speaking agency for the Trinity. So he is saying that he is the one who has spoken these prophecies. And on top of that said, from the time that these things that we've predicted took place, I was there. I'm in all of this. 
I'm intimately involved in everything that God is doing. So that's the introduction of the Trinity and the servant. When we get to chapter 49, we make the transition to the suffering servant and all the theology that goes with that. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's why I spent so much time at the beginning of this evening saying God has this history with Israel where he keeps redeeming them, redeeming them out of Egypt, redeeming them from the places he has scattered them to the four winds, redeeming them out of Babylon, redeeming them, and now he's going to send them the means by which he is bringing them ultimate redemption, eternal redemption. And we love the theology of eternal redemption. We love, really, truly love and appreciate and are utterly dependent on the eternal redemption that Jesus Christ has proffered for us. But who is it promised to? It's promised first to Israel. The focus doesn't change. He's doing a new thing, but he's doing the new thing for Israel and the Gentiles, but not the Gentiles to the exclusion of Israel. Israel and the Gentiles. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. He doesn't mean to profit monetarily. He says, I am the Lord God who teaches you how to have a good life, how to be spiritually profitable, how to walk in appropriate ways so that you don't fall under my wrath. I'm the one who leads you in the way that you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments then your well-being would be like a river and your righteousness would be like the waves of the sea. But stiff-necked, hard-hearted, hard-headed, obstinate Israel did not pay attention to his commandments. And that is the point at which Israel replacement theologians will say, see, that's why God cut Israel off. Because they didn't follow his commandments. Because They didn't follow Moses because they didn't perform the things that God said they were supposed to perform. Right here, God says, I know you're obstinate. I know you're hard-hearted. I know you're treacherous. I know you're stiff-necked. I know you're hard-headed. I know you didn't keep my commandments. I know you haven't paid attention to what you said you were going to do. I know you broke covenant with me. I know you're my erring wife. I know all of that about you. So... Rather than say, so I'm going to cut you off, he says, so I'm going to do a new thing. (laughs) I'm going to redeem you a completely different way. And that is the introduction to the suffering servant. If you had only paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name, the names of your descendants, would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. The same way that I've scattered Israel, the same way that I've taken you into Babylon, that would never happen to your descendants if you had just followed my law. But verse 20 says, go forth from Babylon because they are in the Babylonian captivity. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the ends of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. There it is again. Redeemed, redemption. The story of redemption permeates God's history with Israel, It does not stop at Jesus. Instead, what did we see from Simeon in the temple? That he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. What did we read about Gabriel talking to Mary, telling her that her child was going to be the redeemer of Israel? It doesn't stop at Jesus. What Jesus is, is the continuation of God's faithfulness to Israel 
and finally turning their hearts, turning their minds, so that they do finally worship him appropriately in spirit and in truth. And they worship him from Jerusalem as David's greater son sits on David's throne, ruling from Jerusalem. And then the blessings that come to Israel flow out to the Gentile nations so that God's grace also comes to the Gentiles, but not to the exclusion of Israel. It's because of God's faithfulness to Israel that God is also saving you. You get that? And by the way, have I said anything yet that isn't from Isaiah? No. If you just read continually the context of the book of Isaiah, that's why I don't like it when people start at chapter 53. Because there are 52 previous chapters. And those previous chapters tell you who the focus is, tell you the history of God's dealings with Israel and his faithfulness to Israel and the promises he has made to Israel and all the suffering servant passages, these next nine chapters, all these are are a continuation of God continuing to make promises to those self-same people. The focus hasn't changed. And I think people miss that and over-Gentilize Isaiah 53 because they have truncated the entire first part of this whole book. And so they miss the fact that it's for Israel and then for us. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. That's true. We know that. We know that's a fact. We know that Moses struck the rock and water flowed out of the rock. God points back to it and says, remember the 40 years that you were in the wilderness? Were you thirsty? I took care of you. I provided water and I brought it out of a rock. He split the rock and the water gushed forward. And there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. So the end of that nine chapter section that all had to do with Babylon, that had to do with Cyrus and the Medo-Persians, that whole section ends with God reminding them yet again that he is the only God who is and that he has made these Promises, these forever promises, these unbreakable covenants with Israel, who, yes, have been nothing but stiff necked, hard hearted, difficult, obstinate people. And yet, for his own sake, we just read it, for my own sake, for my own glory, I'm going to do everything I promised you. I'm going to bring you your glorious kingdom. I'm going to redeem you again so that the entire earth, all the nations, everywhere to the end of the earth is going to know that the Lord redeemed his servant Jacob. How is he going to do that? Because he hasn't fully done it yet. How is he going to do it? Well, through his suffering servant. And that's the next big section of the book of Isaiah. So when people say that we are preaching two different ways of salvation, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile, one for the church, one for Israel, the answer is, no, I'm not. I'm preaching the exact same thing Isaiah preached, which is that the suffering servant came to save Israel because they're the ones that God has continually made promises to and God faithfully has sent his son now to do the new thing, which is the redemption of Israel. But along the way, by his grace, he's also going to save elect Gentiles. So it's all through Christ. It's all via the finished work of Christ. At no point does anybody in the Bible say that God is either finished with Israel or that the introduction of Gentile salvation eliminates the promises of salvation to Israel. Chapter 49. Listen to me, O islands. That's interesting. Okay, so if you're in Jerusalem, if you're in the Middle East, then about as far away as you can possibly imagine at the time that Isaiah is writing, is the Tin Islands. 
that are all the way out past Italy, past Rome, and then past Spain. And then if you go around Spain and come up the other side, you're going to find the area of the Gauls. We know it as France now. And you're going to find the islands, the Tin Islands. We now know them as the British Islands. And so whenever God speaks of the furthest area away, he's talking to the islands. And he says, listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you people from afar. So clearly that's what he's saying. Even you distant people, not just my people in Jerusalem, but now listen to me, whoever you are, wherever you are, any place on the planet, listen to me. Now this appears to be Jesus speaking first person. I'll prove that to you in a moment. The Lord, Yahweh, called me. The NASB capitalizes me because they also believe this is a reference to Jesus himself. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. That's right. Gabriel said what his name was going to be. From the body of my mother, he named me. Now, verse 2, this makes it even more obvious that we're talking about Jesus. And he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Well, you read in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then you get to the introduction of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and he's seen with eyes of fire and hair like wool, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. So this is clearly, consistently a reference to Jesus, but not just to Jesus, to Jesus' words. His words are going to be the dividing factor between all people. The sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is going to make a division between all people. The writer of Hebrews says to the dividing of the bone and the marrow. Doctors can't even figure that one out. He's going to be that precise, that exact in his dividing of people. And how's he going to do it? By his word. By the words that come out of his mouth. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me his select arrow. And he has hidden me in his quiver. Okay, so a moment ago, we read God saying... I'm going to do a new thing, something that you don't know, something that I have hidden, something that I have kept to myself. Here Jesus says, that thing, that concealed thing that he's going to uncover, that was me. I'm his select arrow that was hidden in his quiver. I was concealed in the shadow of his hand. So when God talks about this new thing he's going to do, Christ is saying, that's me. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Okay, now we have to talk about that. I cannot tell you the number of commentaries and books and reams of paper that have been used to use this verse as a jumping off point. I'll tell you essentially the way the church replacement logic goes. They say here Jesus is referred to as Israel. And that's true, he is. And then they'll say, that makes him the true Israel as a replacement for the Israel who God first chose. They were just a type of the Jesus to come. Now that Jesus has come, he doesn't need the type anymore because the shadow that it cast has now come to fruition in Christ. He is the true Israel, and therefore God is done. And oh yeah, if you're in Christ, you're also the true Israel, because he's the true Israel. Therefore, the church is the true Israel, and God is done with historic national Israel, because they have been satisfied by the coming of Christ, the true Israel. And then if you're in Christ, you're the true Israel. Isaiah didn't say that. <laughs> no, Bible writer said that. Those are just conclusions that people draw. Have you heard that before? That's just typical church replacement leaps, theological 
fantasies that people make up in order to get to the point of saying the church is now the true spiritual Israel, which nobody in the Bible says. What it does say here is, you are my servant, and then he calls him by the name Israel. Jacob, after he wrestled with the Lord, had his name changed to Israel. He was Jacob, but he was called Israel, prince who has power with God. Jesus is still Jesus, but he's called Israel. That nomenclature says he's the prince who has power with God. Yes, Jesus is going to accomplish what Israel nationally did not. They were told to follow the law, but God knew they weren't going to. God told them that they should follow his commandments that they should be the teachers, the preachers to the world of the magnificence of their God. They, they didn't do that. Jesus is going to do that. So we could say to that degree, he is accomplishing what national Israel has not accomplished. But more than likely, all this means is the same way Jacob was called Israel, Jesus was called Israel because of what the name Israel means what the definition of the word is Israel and that's as much as you can get out of that passage if you stick with the passage only by going to extraneous ideas that are outside the Bible can you draw all those other conclusions that end up with God is done with Israel and now the church is the true Israel there's nothing like that in the text there's nothing like that anywhere in the Bible what there is, is Jesus being referred to as Israel. Not true Israel, not spiritual Israel. There's no adjectives added to it. He is just simply called Israel the same way Jacob was called Israel. The same way that God's elect people were called Israel, Jesus is called Israel. And I think it's because of what the name Israel means. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. God is sending Christ to the planet to glorify God, to show God's own glory on the planet. God in shoe leather, walking on this dusty ball, demonstrating and telling people the glory of God, exegeting God to us, teaching, explaining to us this God. But I said, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Apparently what he's saying there is, and it's true, you can look at the history of Israel. He came as the redeemer of Israel. And then he died, which we're going to see when we get to Isaiah 53. At the point that he had had his ministry on the planet and then died and then resurrected, had Israel collectively come to faith in him? No. Had Israel collectively received their kingdom? No. Had Israel collectively stopped being hard-hearted and stiff-necked? No. And so that seems to be what he's referring to here. He knows what the end is actually going to be, but in rather prosaic fashion, he says, but I said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely the justice that is due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. So Christ knows he's going to come, he's going to do the work, he's going to die, but he knows he's going to be raised to the right hand of God the Father, which is why we read things in the New Testament like, because of the glory that was set before him, that's why he embraced the cross. Because he knew what was coming, that the Father himself was going to give him the justice that was due to him, and that his reward would be with his God. And now says Yahweh, now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, for what reason? To bring Jacob back to him. What did we just read? God just said, you didn't follow my commandments. If you had, life would have gone better for you. But you're obstinate, but you're stiff-necked, but you're hard-headed, but you're treacherous. 
but you won't do what I tell you to do, and you follow after your other gods, and even the things that I did, you give your gods credit for. And so Jacob is away from God, in rebellion against God. Why did Jesus say he came? The Lord who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him. To bring Jacob back to God. Okay, now, here's the big $65,000 theological question for the evening. Since Isaiah said this 700 years before Jesus was on the planet. Do you think Jesus knew this was the plan? Well, the answer is obviously yes. Do you think God would accept his son coming to the planet and failing? No. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus is ultimately going to bring Jacob, notice he didn't even call him Israel here, I'm going to bring those heel-catching people, I'm going to bring those supplanting people, I'm going to bring them back to God. That is the intention of Christ, that is the reason for which he came, to bring Jacob back to God in order that Israel might be gathered to God. That's the purpose. That's the very beginning of the next nine chapters of the suffering servant. Why did he come to the planet? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? Why does Isaiah end up saying, by his stripes, we are healed? Who's we? Israel. Israel. They're healed because of the suffering servant on the cross. The iniquity of us all is laid on him. Who? The people of Israel who he is suffering and dying for. That's the context. That's why I get frustrated at the Gentilization of Isaiah 53. Contextually, it's all about Israel, and you can't extricate Israel from these promises. Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength the NASB put that in parenthesis just so you would understand that Christ's attitude is always that he does whatever pleases the father he came to do the will of the father and that in the sight of Yahweh, he's going to be honored. He's going to be lifted up. He's the one on the white throne. He's the one that's going to judge the whole earth. He's the one that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to. I am honored in the sight of Yahweh, and God is my strength. So he says, now follow this. This is really important to follow contextually. So far, this has all been Israel, 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 more Israel, and now this is about Israel. And then it's Israel. Verse 6, he says, God apparently speaking to Christ. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Who are the tribes of Jacob? Israel. Israel the 12 collective tribes of Israel. So he is sent to the earth for the purpose of bringing Jacob back to God in order that Israel would be gathered back to God. But then God says, that's too small a thing. I mean, yeah, do that, but that's even too small a thing. If I'm really going to honor you, if I'm really going to spread your fame, if I'm really going to make every knee bow to you, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Oh, yes, by the way, yes, yes, raise up the tribes of Jacob. Notice that's not gone. That's first. That's the focus. Yes, raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. How specific is that? Yes, you're going to do all that. But not only that, I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. I'll also make you a light to the nations, to the goyim, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
So I'm not only going to save Israel. Notice that it starts at Israel. It focuses on Israel. It's about Israel, but then it expands out from Israel to the ends of the earth. Not to the exclusion of Israel, through Israel. So my servant is going to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. But I will also make you a light to the Gentile nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Turn to Luke 2 for a moment. I mentioned this briefly in passing a moment ago, and we read it several weeks ago, but I think in this context, it's necessary to see once again. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus in to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. For who? Israel. Israel. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. And now I can die. I have seen your salvation for Israel, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all thy people, that's Israel, and a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So yes, Gentiles, yes, Gentile inclusion, but never to the exclusion of Israel. Even when he was born by the Holy Spirit, Simeon spoke by the Holy Spirit and said that Christ was going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, but he is the glory of your people Israel. That's why Jesus came, and that is what was predicted of him all the way back in Isaiah prophesying first person Jesus speaking and then God saying to him that it wasn't big enough that he come and redeem Israel that he come and save and gather Israel and draw them back to God but that he would also be a light to the Gentiles and then as soon as he's born by the Holy Spirit God has somebody waiting in the temple to announce that this is the salvation this is the redemption of Israel this is the consolation of Israel, and he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, but especially to your people, Israel. I just don't see how you take all that language and then say, okay, that whole Israel thing, that doesn't matter, or to think that Simeon at that moment in the temple was talking about the church. Now let's look at something else. Turn to Acts 13, 47, and for sake of time, Tom... Why don't you turn to Acts 26, 23. And the rest of us are going to go to Acts 13. Because I just want you to see the consistency of this language in the New Testament. I don't know why we don't read it for what it actually says. Acts 13, verse 47 I'm going to start reading at verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began contradicting the things that were spoken by Paul and they were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, writing, I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life 
believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. So Paul is going to the Gentiles because of what Isaiah has already said, that God placed the Son on the planet to be a light to the Gentiles and to bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. Tom, what have you got in Acts 26, verse 23? What does it say? The Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Who are our people? Israel. Israel. So he's going to proclaim to Israel and to the Gentiles. That's the consistent testimony throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. It's to Israel first and also to the Gentile. It's always to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that needs to be our contextual understanding of the whole Bible. Otherwise, it's easy to fall for the rather egocentric notion that this is all about us. And it's not all about us. If you read what it says, it says, it's all about Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel and that we can have faith in Christ and trust him with our eternity because he's a God who's faithful to Israel. That's his reputation. And if you say he has cut Israel off, God said that's tantamount to my name being profaned. And my name cannot be profaned. One more verse to close the night just so we can put the bookends on what we began saying. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and Israel's Holy One. The Redeemer of Israel. That's been the theme all the way through the Old Testament, the redeeming of Israel. But notice when Christ is introduced, the suffering servant, he is still the Redeemer of Israel. He is not suddenly the Redeemer of the Gentiles exclusively. He is the Redeemer of Israel, and because he's the Redeemer of Israel, and because God is really gracious, the salvation that he brings to Israel also then flows out to the Gentiles, but never to the exclusion of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, as to Jesus, the one who men are going to despise, to the one who is abhorred by the nation. Right there is the prediction that he's going to come to his own and his own will receive him not. The very same thing that John testifies actually happened in time, 700 years in advance, Isaiah said, was going to happen. Because God knows that when he sends his son, his son is going to be despised and abhorred by the nation Israel. They're the ones who were responsible for killing him, even though he walked and talked among them and did miracles among them. But that was not an aberration. That did not throw the whole plan of God into upheaval. It was exactly what God planned. It was what God intended, which is why Paul would pick it up in the book of Romans and say that there is this blindness on Israel. Because if they had seen him, if they had understood who he was, they wouldn't have killed him. So he kept them in blindness. And so the one, Jesus, becomes abhorred by the nation. And he becomes servant to rulers. That's right. Herod and Pontius Pilate. Kings shall see and arise. This is his ultimate end. He's going to be the king of kings, even though at one time he was a servant to the rulers. Nevertheless, in the end, kings are going to bow down in front of him as he's the king of kings. Kings shall see him and arise. That means out of respect. Princes will also bow themselves down because of the Lord who is faithful. Have I said anything other than that tonight? I keep saying because he's the faithful God. His faithfulness is why we can trust him with our eternity because he's proven his faithfulness by his faithfulness to Israel because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Israel's his elect. Israel's his chosen people. And if you're saved today, if you're redeemed by Christ today, 
you're redeemed by the God who chose Israel, who was faithful to Israel, even though Israel is just like you, hard-hearted and stiff-necked and obstinate and difficult to get along with and rebellious and not keeping the law. And so God saves by grace, 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 grace. That's how he saved you. That's how he's going to save Israel. I'm happy to have got that all in in one night. It's pretty obvious when you look at it, isn't it? Yes. And that is the introduction to all that Isaiah 52 and 53 stuff. So you cannot ignore the context. The context is he is the savior of Israel and you. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.